So turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. We will be finishing this chapter today, and then for the next several weeks during the Advent season, we'll, uh, we'll, cha- we'll shift uh, the messages to be more in line with the season of Advent as we prepare our hearts and celebration of the birth of our Savior. Amen? I mean, Christmas is a very crucial part of the Christian calendar. And one of the things that we try to emphasize here at Sovereign Grace is, yes, celebrate the Christmas season, but we are Christians and we worship and celebrate the birth of our Savior, more so than get excited about the stuff that we'll buy and go into credit card debt for and be stressed over and exhausted over and then just collapse. Amen. Amen. We worship our Savior during this time. So I encourage you families this season, focus this season with your children and with your family on the birth of our Savior more so than anything else. Getting together with family is wonderful. Like this week, many of you in this room, I've talked, some will be traveling this week for the Thanksgiving holiday to be with family, as you should be. Um, but my encouragement is don't let these, this, these next five to six weeks be stressful. There's enough stress anyway. And the ladies are looking at me like, preacher, you have no idea what you're saying. Uh, but my encouragement is, Focus on Christ. Amen? That's the season. Matthew chapter 20. As we finish this chapter, Matthew climaxes this chapter with a fo- it focuses so much on greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, all of chapter 20 seems like this continual theme. It actually started in chapter 19, but it segued into chapter 20, this question of the greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus' greatest of all attributes is in this passage today. So when we're thinking about the greatest of the kingdom of heaven, I think we're going to see here that Jesus is modeling again what is the greatest. And what we're going to see is his compassion here. I mean, the the interaction with the two blind men um, is in stark contrast to the pride that was illustrated with the parable of the laborers of the vineyard at the beginning of the chapter, the self-serving request of the sons of Zebedee, and even the, remember the indignant jealousy of, of the disciples last week that we looked at. His compassion here is going to be in stark contrast to that. And, and these two blind men that we're going to look at today, stark contrast in their question and their plea for mercy to everyone else that Matthew chapter 20 engages with. But we have to remember, too, that this passage, Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34, we we see parallel passages in Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18. So we'll be referring to those as well if you're taking notes. But think about this. These All throughout chapter 20, Jesus seems to be correcting selfish pride. Here at the end of the chapter, Jesus honors humility. And he takes the time to respond to these requests for mercy. I mean, the 12 disciples witnessed this scene, and it must have had great impact since all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have this miraculous story here. I mean, they they would be forever impacted by Jesus' compassion as he's on his way to Jerusalem. 
I mean, Jesus was never too busy to be insensitive to the suffering of the humble and the meek. He would hear the cries of the humble and he would respond. I mean, the, the, the disciples here would learn this lesson eventually, I think. But these five verses portray one of the most beautiful examples of our Lord's love and compassion. These five verses portray true greatness, true greatness in the kingdom of heaven. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they had heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Powerful story. Let's pray. Dear God, we we do thank you for the reading of your word. Once again, you show us an interaction between your son and humble, broken sinners. So God, I thank you for showing us what true greatness is in your kingdom. And these blind men who cry out to the Lord are showing humility and he elevates them to great status. He heals them and they respond with great gratitude and they follow him. So God, I pray that you would show us this morning where we are in relation to this interaction. Are we truly humble? Are we truly crying out to our Lord? Lord, have mercy on us. Use this time, Lord, for your glory. Shape us as you need to shape us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This scene at the end of Matthew 20 reminds me of the scene in Matthew chapter 19 when the disciples nearby tried to hinder children from coming to Jesus. You remember that one? Matthew 19 verse 13. Little children wanted to sit in Christ's lap and the disciples rebuked the adults who brought the children and they said, you're bothering our Lord. Do you remember that scene? Jesus likewise interacts with these two men, these two blind men, these two beggars. They cry out to Jesus and they were rebuked by the busybodies in the crowd. Same kind of interaction here. Look here in verse 29. As they went out to Jericho, a great crowd followed him. I mean, Jesus and his entourage, they've left Galilee. They've crossed the Jordan River. Now they're back into Judah around Jericho. I mean, the city is not insignificant in the history of God with his people. Remember, Joshua led the people of God to take Jericho in the sixth chapter of the book of Joshua. You remember that? Uh, but, but in the second chapter of, of Joshua, Rahab, the prostitute, showed compassion for two spies 
unnamed, by the way, sent by Joshua to spy out the land. <coughs> Rahab was granted mercy by God to become part of Israel. Remember? They adopted her into the people of God. And Rahab becomes part of Jesus' lineage. Right? She's, she becomes an ancestor of the generational line to Jesus. But, but remember that the walls of Jericho came down. So as Jesus and his entourage here of great crowds come through, uh, Jesus was coming into here. Uh, this must have been a new Jericho and the old ruins that fell must have been nearby as a reminder of God's great power. I mean, Jesus' fame continued to grow as he traveled to Jerusalem. As verse 29 tells us that a great crowd followed him. And when we look in verse 30, uh, Matthew tells us, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, that one phrase there, you can, you can, you see a lot here. Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David. I mean, this verse begins with, behold. And this is an important call to attention. Anytime we see in scripture, behold, there's something following that's important. And here Matthew calls attention to two blind beggars sitting on the side of the road. But also to, he calls us to an important showcase of true greatness in the kingdom of heaven. That's what the behold is pointing to. Behold. There are blind men sitting on the wayside. And here comes a lesson about greatness and humility. I mean, Mark chapter 10, verse 46. This is a parallel passage. Mark's account identifies one of these beggars by name, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. We only see this man mentioned one time in all of the New Testament. And right there in Mark's account of this scene, he mentions one of these beggars by name. Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And just like Rahab, remember, was mentioned by name in the book of Joshua, and then in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, this blind beggar is honored in the word of God by name. That's not insignificant. I mean, perhaps Bartimaeus goes on to become a great disciple of Jesus in the history of the early of the early church, who was humble enough to cry out to his Lord for mercy. Blindness, these men were blind. We've got to think that blindness was common in the ancient Near East. And, and honestly, blindness today is very common in many places around the world. Modern medical practices use antiseptic drops in the eyes of newborns now. Have you ever known that? Nurses who know that? It's a common practice. Why do they do that? To prevent blindness. Because bacteria in a mother's womb can often cause blindness shortly after birth. The bacteria may not be affecting the mother at all, but in the birthing process, it can infect the eyes of a newborn. We know now with modern medicine, drop some antiseptic drops in that newborn's eyes and you'll prevent blindness. Is that correct? Right? So it was very common of this day, and it's common around the world in areas that do not have the modern medicines that we are blessed to have. I mean, these two blind men, Bartimaeus, 
who was the spokesman, cry out to Jesus. The last hope for renewed sight was passing by. Jesus, imagine the scene. Jesus and a great crowd are walking through and leaving Jerusalem, or leaving Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. And these blind men, even though they're blind, they know what's happening. Something great is happening. Jesus is passing by. Let's grab his attention. They were desperate. They were in suffering need. I mean, they cried out to Jesus despite the great crowds that accompanied him. They only wanted Jesus to hear their cries for mercy. I mean, although these men were blind, their spiritual sight, I think, was very clear. I mean, their their physical sight was gone, but, but their spirit saw greatness pass by. They cried out to the son of David. And this son of David is not insignificant in this phrase. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They were crying out to the son of David, who they knew as the only one, the one that God promised in the Davidic covenant back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This one son of David would be the author of salvation. And I think their spiritual eyesight understood this. He is our only hope. We must cry out to him. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, the only one who can bring us salvation. And so when we see here in verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. This phrase, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, is repeated twice. Verse 30 and verse 31. That's not insignificant either. The first time the blind men cry out as Jesus passes by. The second time they cry out in defiance of the rebuke from the crowds. I mean, the response of the crowd reveals the ever-present attitude of all who look down upon others who are less than. Everyone in this room were guilty of the same thing. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. I mean, their faith is expressed here. Their faith cannot be silenced. What a lesson for us to see. I mean, these men cried out to Jesus, the only one who could save them from their misery. I mean, they cried out for mercy, not just again for their blindness, but I think they also cried out for mercy for their souls as well. I mean, the crowds always try to hinder faith of the suffering, don't they? You know what? You know what mob mentality is? You know what it means to follow the crowd? We're all guilty of that. We get wrapped up in the fervor of the crowd. And the crowd will often say, shush, be quiet. I mean, Jesus is too busy for you. That's what the crowd is saying. You're not worthy of this great man. We are following him. You're just blind. Shush. The devil loves to use crowds, doesn't he? The devil loves to use arrogance to belittle the souls of the humble and the broken. The devil will do this. And that's what we see happening here. The the cry, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. It shows the intensity of their eagerness for Jesus to hear them, their eagerness for mercy, their eagerness for Jesus himself. I mean, their desire would not be silenced, although they were exposed to the hatred of those that crowd. I mean, that shows deep faith. How many of us, if a crowd shushes us, we zip it up afraid of offending someone? 
How many of us are more interested in the opinion of the crowd than we are about the love of our Savior? I mean, these men, their, their fear was overcome by this intense eagerness for Jesus so that they could not be stopped from raising their voices, even raising their voices above the crowds. They cried out to their Lord, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowds rebuked them and they cried even louder so that their Lord would hear them. I mean, the cry, Lord have, da- Lord have mercy on us, the son of David, it does. It shows the intensity of their faith. And it also shows their fear is overcome. Imagine how loudly these men had to cry out. I mean, it annoyed the busybodies of the crowd. How many times do we shush people because they're an annoyance, but they're actually excited about the Lord? We shush them. Imagine how loudly these men had to overcome there. They had to go above the annoyance of the busybodies of the crowd. Busybodies is the key here. You know, busybodies in the crowd. They want to control everything and they want to tell everybody what they can and cannot do. That's a busybody. And that's what's happening in this crowd. I mean, but who these busybodies in the crowd, they were following Jesus. They were part of this great entourage who was around Jesus but why were they there? They were there for the sake of the moment. They were there for the popularity of who Jesus was becoming, not for his compassionate mercy. They were just there because it was the popular thing to do, to follow the great teacher as he's coming through. The busybodies were annoyed, but Jesus was compassionate. Notice that. I mean, I, I don't think we can overlook the obvious in verse 31, that it's often the followers of Christ. These This crowd was following Jesus. But it's often those followers of Jesus who hindered the approach of those who need Jesus the most. Are you hearing me, Christians? I mean, the pious here, they're often seduced by religious ceremony. They're often reduced by popular church culture. You know what I mean by popular church culture? You'd rather listen to the hottest music or the, the latest song on contemporary Christian music radio or podcast or streaming. Yeah, we don't do radio anymore. It's all streaming now, right, teenagers? Is it Spotify? Is that what y'all listen to now or what? Y'all help me. Keep me, keep me hip somehow. Because I say radio and TV and the teenagers in the room look at me like with blank stares. But it's like streaming, right? You're streaming the latest Christian YouTube and all this stuff. You'd rather be involved in that stuff than actually paying attention and being passionate for Christ. In contrast, the two blind men, what do they do? They're persevering to overcome their blindness and they're trying to overcome their misery. These two blind men have a fervency that does not allow Satan to bring obstacles in their way to keep them from Jesus. I mean, this cry of Lord have mercy on a son of David, it's a prayer. I mean, albeit a prayer, a cry that sought to overcome the busyness and the sound of the crowds, but it was a prayer nonetheless. Is your prayer that now? Lord, have mercy on us. In this prayer, we, we acknowledge, what are we doing? We're acknowledging our pitiful state. And we're acknowledging the Savior who alone can redeem us. Simple prayer, but profound. Here in verse 32, notice Jesus' response to these blind men. 
It's the same response, really, that he gave the sons of Zebedee back in verse 21. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Back in verse 21, and he said to her, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, what do you want? I mean, Jesus stops here. Notice this. Jesus hears the cries of blind men and he stops to respond to them. I mean, he calls to them. But these men called to Jesus first. Here we see that although we can only come to the Father in heaven as he calls us, that's what John chapter 7 verse 44 says. You can only come to the Father in heaven as the Father in heaven calls you. But here also, there's also the calling out from the sinner to Jesus too. It's both. I mean, these blind men had never met Jesus, but they knew of him. They had heard of Jesus' great miracles and of his kindness and the compassion for the broken and the miserable. And Jesus stops. I mean, Jesus determined to grant their request because he knew their humility. Jesus knows the hearts of all men. And he wanted to hear it from them. Remember that he asked the same question of the sons of Zebedee as he asked these blind men. What do you want of me? The sons of Zebedee and really all the 12 disciples, what did they want? That's what we saw in chapter 20. What did they want? They wanted greatness. What do these blind men want? They only wanted Jesus' mercy. That's a stark contrast. And I don't think Matthew's arrangement of these scenes is by accident. I think he's doing this on purpose to teach the greater message of who Jesus is. The greatness of our Savior is at play here. Jesus stops. Look at verse 33. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And the man asked, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Now, now, some may want to allegorize this request beyond the practical, but, but I think the deeper observation here is the manner by which these men come to the Lord and petition Him. I mean, there is a rule established in our Lord's kingdom and in Scripture for how we ought to ask and in what manner and to what extent we are to ask. And I think, so, I think that's part of what we see here too. I mean, Jesus puts the question to these men, not just for their sakes, but also for the ears of the crowds who are nearby. Remember, that there were members of this crowd who are rebuking these blind men, and Jesus is teaching them a lesson too. He's showing them by example, here is how you come and ask me anything. His voice Calling out to these men, these blind men, alerts the crowd to observe what's getting ready to happen here. Observe the mercy and compassion that I'm about to grant to these men. The mercy and compassion that leads to a grand miracle. Pay attention, crowd. Then in verse 34, notice why Jesus grants the request of, of sight for these men. Look at what it says. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes. Or in some translations, and Jesus moved with compassion, touched their eyes. Jesus desired, he wanted to to cure these men of blindness. He desired to cure them, not just by grace, which is undeserved favor or undeserved goodness, but he wanted to cure them out of pity. 
He had genuine compassion for these men. These men cried out for our Lord's mercy. The Greek here is kurie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Kurie eleison. The implication here in the gospel, I mean, Matthew's choice of words is that source of Jesus' desire for mercy. The source of his mercy, the source of his, of his granting the request is the pity. And where does the pity come from within our Lord? That the wording here in the Greek actually implies it comes from the very bowels of our Lord, the very essence of who he is. I mean, he desired to care for these men, not just for a show to the great crowds, but he wanted to take care of these men and, and serve them from his very heart, his very being, his very soul. I mean, he came with pity. I mean, this pity, this compassion comes out of him from his very essence of who he is. And he, he grants their request. Now, Mark's account, Mark chapter 10, verse 52 tells us that here's, it's worded a little differently. It says, Jesus says to these men, your faith has saved you. Mark's account adds that. And some may take this as our duty and responsibility to have faith, that somehow our efforts of faith is what saves us. But, but this is not what we see here in the scene. I mean, yeah, faith is what saves us. But if you take what Mark says in Mark 10, 52, some people twist that and say, well, you have to do this. They put the effort on the man as if you manufacture your own faith somehow. That's the point. We don't manufacture our own faith. That faith is a gift of our Lord. Yet we are responsible to nurture that faith, express that faith. God is calling us through faith. I mean, but, but this is not what we see here in this scene. I mean, Jesus saves these men and gives them sight. It's not because these men have earned it, not because these men have caused it, but because of Jesus's pity. And his pity recognizes their faith. Your faith has saved you. Jesus' compassion, his compassion, his favor is what saves these men and heals them. But we also have to take away here that if Jesus declares that faith is part of this decision to cure, then we must see the word saves here is not limited to just physical cures, but it also involves the health and the safety of the soul. That's what's at play here. It's as if Jesus himself had said that by faith, the blind men obtained that God was gracious to them and, and God granted the request. That's what saved them. In verse 34, here's what he, he continues. Out of his pity, he had compassion, and he touched them and immediately, immediately they recovered their sight. But they didn't just regain their sight. What happened? And they followed him. I mean, this detail here shows us that these men did not just receive a great healing miracle. What it shows here is that they, they leapt up and they followed Jesus. They joined with the other crowd that was following him. I mean, they could see him now. They did not know what, what it was to see. They did not want to lose sight of him now. They knew what blindness was. And now that Jesus opens their eyes and they see him clearly, they want to stay so close to him, they don't ever want to lose sight of him again. You see what's happening? 
I mean, they wanted to go after their Savior. They wanted to be near Him always. Now, let's contrast here the difference between Jesus' twelve and even the disciples in the great crowd with these blind men. Let's take a contrast here. The blind men only asked this question. They, all they wanted was to see Jesus. I think that was part of their request for... Yeah, clearly they wanted to see. Give us sight. But they also wanted to see the man who was giving it to them. The twelve apostles and even the people in the crowd, what did they ask of Jesus? They wanted to be great. The, the focus of these blind men was not their greatness. The focus of these blind men was Jesus himself who was going to grant them sight. The focus of the 12 apostles that we saw in chapters 19 and 20, and even now here, even the great crowd that was shushing the blind men, what was their focus? They wanted greatness. Notice the stark difference here. I mean, the blind men, they show gratitude, and they actually follow in service to their Lord. The 12 disciples, actually, they show misguided pride here in chapter 20. I mean, the blind men follow Jesus out of duty and out of respect, out of humility, out of faith. They walked with Jesus in his grace. Now, Luke's account, Luke chapter 18, verse 43, gives the response of all the people in the crowd that witnessed this miracle. We don't see the response of the crowd in this passage in Matthew, but in Luke's account, Luke 18, 43, it says this, and immediately... He recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This great crowd that shushed these men, when Jesus showed great compassion and mercy, out of pity, the great crowd praised God for it. I mean, this great crowd, they witnessed that truly. Remember the theme of chapter 20? The last will be first and the first will be last. The great crowd witnessed here that lesson and they must have seen it at least temporarily. And they praised God for it. They saw a great miracle and they saw a great salvation and they praised the Lord. Now, let's take away one important lesson from this text. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven. The greatness in the kingdom of heaven is this. Jesus Christ himself is the greatest. So any attempt to gain favor and to elevate ourselves in the hierarchy of the kingdom of heaven is a vain pursuit because we'll never jump ahead of Christ himself. And I think that's part of what Matthew's trying to teach us here as well. These great crowds, they witnessed a truly great miracle. And they witnessed great compassion and mercy for those that they shushed. Jesus himself is the greatest here. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the son of David, the son of God. I mean, this miracle shows a stark contrast to the question of greatness. I mean, we saw it back in chapter 19 as well. But so 19 and 20, this common theme. Back in Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28, remember this. 
Here's what Jesus said. But whoever would be great among you, he's talking to his 12, whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem here to do just that. And along the way, he stops when he hears the cries for mercy from two blind men. And he shows them compassion. And he heals them. And they follow him. I think Matthew's placement of this scene with the blind men as it follows Jesus' encounters with prideful people in chapters 19 and 20, I think it bookends the truth of greatness here. Christ Jesus alone is the greatest. Our misery, our sinful depravity, it can either isolate us from our Lord or it can bring us to His feet, crying out for mercy. You know people who just embrace their misery and they want to just love their misery. All of us are guilty of that. So our misery and our depravity can either isolate us from the Lord or it can bring us to his feet, crying out for mercy. And, and, and this genuine prayer, Lord, have mercy on us. Curie elation is what the greatest Jesus himself. That's the prayer he hears. His compassion to serve responds to this kind of prayer. His compassion to heal the sin of all men shows his greatness. So I want to close with this question for you, and then I want us to read Psalm 142 together. Do we acknowledge this about our Lord, or do we rather embrace ourselves seeking our own reward, our own greatness? Psalm 142, now I'll be reading from the ESV, but if you have a different translation, read this with me. I mean, this cry of mercy, this prayer of mercy is not alone in this passage in Matthew. It's a common prayer. And this prayer of David in Psalm 142, as he was in a cave running for his life, here was his prayer to the Lord as he was being chased. Psalm 142 Just imagine this as a prayer of David to his Lord. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. It's the same prayer that these blind men were crying out to their Lord. Lord, have mercy on me. Where are you? Is that your prayer?
Let's close in prayer. Father God, we praise You for this. This repeated truth in Your Word reminds us of where our focus is. In the times of misery and despair, we cry out to You, Lord, have mercy. Lord, I pray that You would protect our souls from going deep into the darkness of despair and, and misery and, and finding comfort there. That's, that's not where You want us to be. You want to rescue us and pull us out of that despair and that misery and that darkness. The blindness of our souls needs to be repaired. And so God, I thank You for showing us the humble faith of Bartimaeus here. The blind man who sat on the side of the road as a beggar, crying out to his Lord. I pray, God, you would humble our hearts. Make us beggars so that we cry out to our Lord. He is the greatest of your kingdom. And we seek him out, Lord, and we pray that you would stir us to desire our Lord's compassion, and mercy. We thank you for this truth. Humble us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.